0: A Japanese on with a an Hello and
1: welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Norwood and I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're going to be talking about the exciting topic of death.
0: It's all—it's all, it's all taking a turn for the morbid. What do we mean, turn for the morbid? It's like that in every game that you run. <laughs> yes, I do feel oddly at home. But before that, Matt, you've just come back from Poland. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> there and back
2: again—a Matt Sanderson adventure. <laughs> yeah, and how to cram six people into a a, a SEAT. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was a good trip. We went over there for a mutual friend of ours, and Angie's wedding from the local tabletop club. She's now moved back to Poland and has tied the knot over there. So a whole mm. bunch of gamers went over with you from Milton Keynes. Yeah, and gamers from all over the world. We had people from China, Russia, oh, and Blimey. Italy, yeah. Hmm.
0: And apparently there was something strange that happened there. There was a lot of
2: very strange things that <laughs> happened there.
0: <laughs> there was something strange there that didn't involve sausage. Yeah, the
2: fact that twelve courses, twelve, thirteen courses on the um, at the wedding reception. I think between courses, we went to the infamous sausage table that was in the um, in the
0: corner at the reception. <laughs> I, every event needs a sausage table. It was a huge array of sausages. I, I, is there a better chat up line than "I'll see you at the sausage table"?
2: <laughs> I one of the best views in the house as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sure it is.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: sausage as far
2: as the eye could you see. see. <laughs> Sat around the sausage table, overlooking the courtyard. A group of us got together and were discussing, oh, so how, how do you know Ange? What's kind of, the, kind of the common denominator here? And as unsurprisingly, given most of the people at the wedding there were brought together by games. And one of the individuals there, I'm probably going to pr- mispronounce your names badly, so I'm sorry about that, introduced himself as Chris. His surname is uh, Chumilowski is a lecturer at a university in that area around the Gdansk and Gdynia area, Um, the only university in Poland that teaches a game design course, and they have about 300 students, where I learnt that we are effectively academic textbooks and (laughs) academic research material that they provide to their students, particularly for our work in Europe Ablaze that we use as examples of comprehensive scenario design to, um, to teach to the introductory students at the course. Words cannot express how weird this is. <laughs> so he was like, oh, you're the Matt Sanderson. Yeah. It was like full on, like, oh, can I call you Matt? Can I use, can I use the first name? <laughs> so it, was, it was really full on, full on admiration and fan. It was really, really just bizarre and humbling. So, <laughs> how wonderful. Blimey. Yeah. And they invited you to go back. Yeah, um, to do a guest spot in lecturing over there. So doing a couple of um, Skype sessions leading up to going over there in person and giving a talk on how I approach game design and um, scenario inspiration and so on. We need to open up the uh, the
1: Jackson Elias Open University broadcasts.
0: <laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah, send them out at four o'clock every morning.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm. We need to get, like corduroy jackets with elbow patches and a beard well you've you go oh, oh god i'd need to get a beard yeah <laughs> it's like okay. something out of the 70s i'll explore a bit of yours yeah god. yeah i'll share it it'll yeah, it,
0: creep over there in time
1: i'll just read the article
0: <laughs> oh yes <laughs> We've just unboxed all the issues of the Blasphemous Tome, Issue 1, that we're going to be sending out to all the backers, and yes, one of the articles in there is my personal guide to beard care.
1: Which, if you're a backer, then you'll know about this, because by the time you're listening to this, you will have received your copy. The one story that the magazine doesn't tell, when we sat there the week beforehand saying, uh, Matt's doing the layout, I was doing the final editing, and uh, you're printing it, Scott? Yes, and in Scott's words, and you'll you'll confirm this, Matt. Uh-huh. He said, "Yes, I'll print all on my laser printer. Well, Take du- me duplex laser printer, duplex yeah. laser printer. Take me one, one to two hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> one to
2: two hours."
0: Uh, to, to, to be <laughs> fair, the printer is twenty pages per minute. It- yeah. Those
2: are long minutes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, in theory, it's 20 pages per minute. When it comes to printing the blasphemous tome, it's one page every three fucking minutes. <laughs> uh, it is blasphemous. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Oh, it's certainly blasphemous enough. How many days did you print them? It, yeah, it took me three and a half days. <laughs> and, and repairing your printer how many times? Oh, you well, know, <laughs> that, that was printing the Cars cover and the paper jams and. Oh, anyway, sorry, I'm I'm, I'm having flashbacks here. So
1: if any of the listeners do have any contracting work they want to put out to Scott, you know, printing work they want done, you know, like brochures for the European election or anything like that, Scott will handle all that, won't you, Scott? Yeah,
0: just give me a year's lead time if you want more than a dozen printed.
2: (laughs) Thinking of uh, books and other blasphemous tomes being uh, approaching people's doorsteps, we're very close to having a very large package arrive. I know my person's going to have a bloody hernia when he turns <laughs> up at my door. Matt is speaking
1: of nothing other than Call of Cthulhu's 7th edition, I believe.
2: Yes. Which, again, by the time you hear this,
1: you might have a copy of. Yay. I never thought I'd be saying that. but <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, for a long time, this just seemed like an abject impossibility. But, but apparently, two out of the three ships have docked at, at the time of recording and we're a few days away from the European ship docking. Dun, 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 dun. Why, this has been three years. <laughs>
2: and then all like, suddenly, my postman arrives with 20 copies, 20, <laughs> diff- 20 different books in the initial shipment that he's going to end up bringing to my doorstep.
0: Oh, Matt.
2: <laughs> like, he's going to hate me because my Shadows of Esther in order turning up next sometime in the next month as well. <laughs> and that's two, uh, two whole Kickstarters worth of stuff turning up.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <sighs> oh, yeah, Crazy. Yeah. But enough of that. It's time for the
1: word of the.
0: Week.
1: And now the Lovecraftian word
2: of the
0: week.
2: Indeed, our Lovecraftian word of the week this week is Sepulchre. A noun this is a really short example actually. A burial vault. Two more grave.
0: And yes, I think this is quite a good Lovecraftian word because it, it has that Lovecraftian quality of being a grand eloquent word for a word that, that people you know, might use a much simpler choice for most of the time, like, you know, as we said, grave or tomb. But Lovecraft loves that word sepulchre. It turns up 13 times in his fiction and there's variants of it as, as adjectives uh, throughout
1: I envisage it as one of those stone tombs which are above ground, but it can just be a, a regular earthen grave. You know, I'm not quite sure. Because that's what the, the, the noun seems to
2: imply, but yeah. I'm not
0: sure. Th- yeah, I've, I've always pictured it as being more like a mausoleum or a <laughs> small stone structure. Mm.
2: The main structure is above ground, but then it goes down almost like half a level, and that's where, a few steps down, and then you've got tombs inside it.
0: Yeah, you don't hear about serial killers leaving victims in shallow sepulchres in the woods. No, no. <laughs> well, well the, maybe in some of Lovecraft's novels, <laughs>
2: you No, the, the thing that leaps to mind with me, it's the title
0: of James Herbert novel. But, yeah, it's got a good gothic ring to it as well. and And I think for a lot of Lovecraft's earlier stories in particular, it fits the tone of them quite well.
1: I think also it's a Lovecraftian word in that when I look at the letters of the word, I think... I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. (laughs) And that's one of the attributes, I think, of a Lovecraftier word. They're words that generally I'm not familiar with, and I I perhaps haven't heard spoken aloud. Mm,
0: Perfectly cromulent. But talking of speaking them aloud, let's have a few examples of how Lovecraft himself used it. From The Tomb. Of the midnight
1: storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion. The older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices, alluding to what they call Divine Wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulchre.
0: And from the Statement of Randolph Carter I heard it and knew no more, Heard it as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow, amidst the crumbling stones and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation and the miasmal vapours. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulchre as I watched amorphous necrophagous shadows dance beneath an accursed, waning moon.
2: And from The Call of Cthulhu... The great stone city Relay, with its monoliths and sepulchres, had sunk beneath the waves, and the deep waters, full of one primal mystery through which not even thought can pass, had cut off the spectral intercourse.
0: But now let's move on to our main topic, as we dice with death. This topic was suggested to us by one of our
1: backers, Tim Vert. Have we explored the theme of death in role-playing games? How we deal with it in our games, how it's dealt with in other games, TPKs, and, and all that good stuff. So we decided to uh, pick up on this as a theme. Thank you very much, Tim.
0: Well, I think, first of all, we're talking explicitly about player characters, aren't we? We're not talking about the players, Scott. I mean, a bit <laughs> he's, hard, he's, had, he's had a, a bit good hard run hardcore. at that as well.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah let's let's not go there death in a role-playing game can kind of come in many ways so thinking particularly of call of cthulhu when you reach zero sanity in effect your player character becomes you know a non-player character in a way it's died it's taken out of your hands and becomes in the gm's remit
0: for uh, the sake of the the conversation we'll have this evening we'll talk about death in terms of anything that makes the character unplayable to the player I can remember one of the more
1: worrying factors in playing Dungeons & Dragons wasn't really, for me, outright death. It was those creatures that would drain levels from you. You'd fought and struggled all the way up to, I don't know, fifth level, and so had your buddies. And then you meet, I can't remember what it was, a wraith
0: or something like that. The damage it did was to drain levels. And you get some of that... Sort of in Call of Cthulhu as well. I mean, for example, Dark Young—they drain strength. So you're not just dying by uh, losing hit points and taking normal damage, but you're having the life sucked out of you. Other attacks may drain power or even intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, certain drugs and poisons may do that. And in the end, if your character is left as a withered husk that isn't capable of independent movement, uh, whether their mind is destroyed by you know some strange chemical from beyond, it doesn't really matter that. Yeah, in terms of them being playable characters generally, they've still got a pulse. For the game and the narrative and the players, they might as well be dead. I was thinking you almost had that experience when
2: we played Hornuard Express. That was even just in Character Gem, rolling on that table from Green and Pleasant Land. Oh my God, Yeah, that, 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 that took away a lot of levels for me. You him, rolled right? on a table for all the war injuries that you'd sustained <laughs> during the First World War, and I rolled pretty badly. You went into war of almost a superhuman being and came out, well, a shadow of your former self, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I had lung damage and... Oh, was, it was of, a mustard gas attack. Yes, I had loss of
1: constitution, loss of strength. Yeah, numerous... Um, debilitating factors that were applied to my character before I even got to play him you did end up with a
2: cane that did more damage than a gun I remember that (laughs) I did have a super cane yes
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) oh god
2: but is character death
0: always a bad thing well certainly death as a prospect hangs over a lot of role playing games as a threat Certainly, there are plenty of genres where I think it would be utterly inappropriate. Any game that's about interpersonal relationships where there's no expectation of violence, then death isn't really something that you're you're pushing towards, and there's generally no mechanics in the game to support it.
1: Yeah, and some of those smaller kind of very focused games they may not have a a, even a damage or death mechanic
0: and similarly i would have thought if you're running a game for children depending on the age of the children if it's young children you may not want to have player character death as being an option there even if you're playing in a game where death is an expected part of it, people still get attached to their characters. And, you know, I've certainly seen people have bad reactions to having their PCs killed. I think there are different expectations in
1: different games. I think if you're playing modern DD, then you can, if you're playing in a kind of optimal fashion, you can expect your character to last quite a long time and, and accrue levels and, and power and, and treasure and so on. If you're playing... Call of Cthulhu, then you can expect to to get a little way, but you you know you know you're going to be relatively short lived. I think yeah, you might get through a campaign, you might get through a bit more, but
0: and certainly you know with a lot of OSR games, I mean Lamentations of the Flame Princess, uh, there's I think an expectation that characters there are going to be fairly disposable things, and it's perhaps a bit rarer to get attached to them there. Mm-hmm. But but certainly I mean I've I've seen it with Call of Cthulhu, I've seen people hold on to characters against the odds and really keep them going and invest a lot of themselves in that one character. When that character dies, it's a significant thing. I think there's a fundamental difference in mindset. Some
1: people come to the table and their character is quite disposable and it's a bit like having an old car that you're quite happy to drive into the ground but have fun doing it to buying a brand new car and being worried about every single little scratch or dint in the paintwork or you know and you never park it next to any old cars because they might open their door and dent it i guess you can go to either extreme yeah and be kind of overly protective about your character or overly uh reckless
0: yeah i mean certainly overly protective i find can lead to some fairly dull places particularly with a game like call of cthulhu or dungeons and dragons or the variants where your character's pretty much advance or you know make progress in the scenario by putting themselves in danger when you get people who really don't want to risk that character death then it can be quite paralyzing. I
1: you mean, know, I have had situations in I'm thinking particularly Call of Cthulhu games where a player has been playing their character they're not particularly reckless they've been playing them for a long time and they take some form of action and I step to one side as as GM and sort of say, you know, if you go down this course of action you're probably almost certainly gonna die And they look at me and say, No, no, that's great. Okay, that's that's fine. I'm quite <laughs> happy with that. As a generalisation, I think most people, if they feel the story is good and the death seems appropriate, I think most people are happy to embrace that. And and often, what do you talk about after a game? You don't talk about how your character fought some orcs and then they went and opened a treasure chest uh, or your character, you know, they followed some deep ones to a dock. You talk about the glorious deaths. <laughs> yeah. The terrible way you died. Sometimes the totally pointless way you died, the funny way you died, the gruesome way you died, the heroic way you died.
0: So much so that uh, at Conception, when the convention on the south coast, they actually give out an award for the most memorable death that's taken place at the convention, <laughs> the Golden Batter Award. <gasps> Players and GMs write up stories of the memorable deaths that have happened during the games during the convention. And the convention organisers go through, they try to find the best ones. But I think there's also a difference in expectation there of whether you're playing a one-shot or playing a campaign, that you're more likely to you know, drive your player character like a stolen car if it's a one-shot. Well, certainly from the GM side of things... It's very easy in some Call of Cthulhu campaigns, I mean, Masks of Nyarlath is the classic in this respect, to turn them into meat grinders. Your players will just create investigator after investigator. They'll turn up, uh, you know, and something nasty will pop out of the shadows, rip them into shreds, and then they'll just grab the next character sheet, create the next character. Back when I was a lot younger, I don't know, I, I used to find that quite fun. Now, I seem to want a bit more out of campaigns, both as a player and a, as a GM. And I find that style of play leads to a complete disengagement from the character. I, you know, in in Masks of you know in, in the campaign I ran, it was barely worth the players coming up with names for their characters. You know, it, it was, right, I'll create another private investigator. He'll come in, join the party, and splat, oh, well, I'll create yeah, another just- private investigator. I think
1: if we think about epic stories, I mean, if we take, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or or Star Wars as as commonly known epic stories, when you think about the deaths in those, you've got Boromir, you've got Gandalf. I hope I don't have to say spoilers here, (laughs) Um, but you know, both of those die, or or seemingly die, at least uh, as as heroic deaths, saving other people. You know, Obi Wan Kenobi. So you do have deaths. I think in, in every one of the, the, the books or films, there are major characters that die, yeah. but most of the core characters, that's like one player character dies here and there, but the main core of the group goes on, so there's continuity.
0: You, you don't get to the end of The Fellowship of the Ring and it's a completely different cast of characters there because they all got killed by falling apples or something.
1: Even in Game of Thrones, <laughs> some people do survive. <laughs> Well, you've read them all, Scott. Are there characters that survive from the very first book to the last book?
0: A few, yes. Yeah, a few. Mm.
2: So... I was just thinking one way to get round it, the, when you mentioned about Masters and the tip. our friendly neighbourhood keeper, Matt Knott. I'd be interested to go through his notes at one point and find out how many different generations of the Dibden family have been murdered in various instances <laughs> yeah, across the various the campaigns. Dibdons. So Matt, oh, yeah. Matt's, Matt's technique for
1: replacement characters is that he's got this kind of extended
0: family tree of, of those sons and cousins. and. But yeah, he's, he's certainly not the only one who's done that. I mean, yeah, my old friend Sol, who I know listens to this uh, out in New York, he had this extended family, the Smythe family, one of his characters survived quite a long way into Masks in the of the Dead, but after that, you know, it, it was, again, the same kind of thing, uh, and it's a nice, easy conceit because it's sort of, right, you know, you killed my brother, or something nicely killed my brother, I shall come along and investigate and, and try to, you know, uh, put all this to rights, and, and splat, oh, well, you killed my brothers, I'll come along and sort this out. My name is Inigo
2: Montoya. <laughs> <laughs> you killed my father. <laughs>
0: But, yeah, I mean, it's funny you're recounting that, but it takes any drama and emotional investment out of the game. If you don't care about the character you're playing, into, if you're seeing it as just a disposable pawn, why should you really care about the outcome?
2: Going back to that age-old discussion of what do you get out of gaming and how do you enjoy playing, and there are so many different varied play styles that as long as you enjoy it, really, does it, does it matter?
0: I think in a lot of respects the threat of death is more interesting than the natural death in a game. Hmm. That feeling that your character is in peril, that feeling that your character could die at any time, is much more interesting than a constant stream of deaths.
1: Yeah, I think to get that feeling, you've got to have occasional deaths. Yes. If you play in a particular style, you can find that After a while, the players just feel like, well, nobody ever dies in this, and it kind of loses its edge a bit. So I kind of feel it's part of my job is to make sure that people do die occasionally.
0: I think another thing you can do, though, to reinforce that idea, that threat of death, is kill NPCs in quite graphic and memorable ways. In a game I was running fairly recently, to reiterate just how much potential trouble the player characters were in. I'd have an NPC that they'd come to know suddenly get grabbed by something or, you know, electrocuted in a strange way, or set on fire or whatever, and die in a hideous screaming way. It made it feel like the tension was getting ratcheted up and it sort mm. of shit, that was nearly me, and <laughs> if I'm not careful it will be me. I mean there are other things you can do to characters that are perhaps as scary or or scarier than death. Yeah. Well, there. Um,
2: cult has been on my mind a lot recently with the Kickstarter and, vari- and various bits and pieces. One of the elements of that that I love is purgatory. Mm. So even though you've been through all the horror, you've been through all the mess that the campaign and the world and the illusion has to throw at you, and then you end up in a purgatory with the nephorite waiting for you with a big grin. So yeah. no, death is not the end, it is not a release. <laughs> you just have even more shit waiting for you when you get to the other side. <laughs>
0: Well, now let's take a look at how different RPGs handle death. So we're going to
1: look at some specific games and how they handle death. And sometimes they've taken it upon themselves to build some aspect of the mechanics around death to treat it differently to the the standard, you know, old school kind of D&D. You get hit with some rocks, you fall down, you're dead, create another character. Matt, do you want to kick us off with the first one of these?
2: Yeah, Um, we'll begin with a little known game called Call of Cthulhu. There is obviously a lot of character death in there, as we've we've discussed. But one little used rule that's in the Dreamlands sourcebook revolves around the dreaming skill. It's a way to, say, cheat death, but have a little bit of your character still usable. That if you succeed a dreaming role at the moment of death, your dreaming self appears in the Dreamlands. This is something that I know that Paul used in Walker in the Waste. It's how I managed to cheat the rest of the party, taking me out on the ice and shooting me in the back of the head. That I ended up just saying, No, I'll walk off onto the ice and I, I might be gone sometime. Haha, or I'll sit and freeze to death and then spend all my luck on my dreaming roll. Haha, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much a cheat death, it's just an extension into a different type of game. Because the Dreamlands is a very, very different game to the rest of normal Call of Cthulhu. So you could store, different people could store up a character in that and then you
1: could run a game based around those uh, characters in the Dreamlands.
2: That's a really good
0: idea. <laughs> Why has no one ever thought of that, Matt? <laughs> a fairly simple thing in a number of the variants of fate I've looked at, you've got health tracks, and the idea is when you, you get down to zero, you know, something bad happens. And there are a few different ways of mitigating that in the game. I mean, one is the very obvious one of you just define what running out of your health track means. So you know, instead of your character being death, it can just simply mean they're captured or incapacitated <coughs> or knocked out. Another is the idea that you've got consequences. So instead of running off that track, you can sort of say that, right, I'll take a consequence and I'll sort of buy off some of that damage. And it could be a mild one of something like, yeah, I, I'm mildly concussed, all the way up to a fairly serious one of, I've lost a leg. Osmantica
1: took a different approach in that the characters are still open to death, but they took on this. Form of play they called troop style play. So, as a player, you would have several characters within the game world. So, you'd have your Magi, who was a, a powerful wizard character. Uh, you'd have a companion, who was a kind of a, a mid level Aragorn type kind of companion to the, the player's covenant. And then you'd have Grogs. Because grogs were like just your bog standard fighters. So there were those three tiers, and each player would have um, characters within each tier. If you did uh, lose one of those, then it wasn't too bad because you've got other players in the mix, and it was a it, there was a bigger story going on, uh, particularly with the grogs. Um, sometimes we'd just have a pool of you know a dozen grogs with the party, somebody'd just pick one up to play them. and the the longer lived ones kind of became characters um, in themselves, but some of the others were just kind of can
2: fodder, really. And one game that pretty much revolves around death right from the outset, Wraith the Oblivion. It's more modern iteration in uh, Chronicles of Darkness, uh, Geist, the Sin Eaters, that, that you're both effectively playing ghosts. So the game starts, in most cases, at least in your character background, that your character's died. You are now playing the ghost that's left on the, um, left on the other side in this Shadowlands dark reflection of the, mo- of the modern world. But you're split between whether you're a, effectively, your psyche, your rational part of your your being, the core of your personality, and your shadow being your darker, twisted, uh, kind of evil self, as it were, that kind of imp on, imp on your shoulder that's pushing you to doing all um, horrendous deeds. I mean, you, you're already
1: dead. You're playing your, the ghost of your character, if you like, but the ghost is your character. Is there still combat and effective kind of? death in the game oh, there's death beyond death um, you can your corpus can still be ripped apart your so character- whilst you're playing a ghost in effect that's your player character and it can be killed yes yeah yeah Yeah. could you be playing another white wolf type game say hunters or something you could kind of set up that game and then if the player characters got killed could you kind of contrive to move on to
2: wraith um in theory yes particularly um, if you had a tpk yeah <laughs> which is somewhat, somewhat easy in some of the games um it, I think there's certain rules in place for it that saying that certain races don't become wraiths upon death, but others do. Like I know regular humans there's a very good chance they can become ghosts, but it doesn't happen to every single person that dies, otherwise the underworld will be swamped with with people. And other ones that do end up getting um getting killed either end up being turned into ashtrays or bricks or being used as the physical building blocks of the underworld itself. I remember one of the descriptions in there, the walls of one of the major uh, necropoli. Each brick is forged from a different soul.
0: A fairly unusual one in this case, uh, Monster Hearts. Well, it handles death in a couple of different ways, or at least you know, avoiding death. If your character takes enough damage to kill him, you can put off the inevitable by losing all the strings you've got, all the connections you've got with other player characters. You can lose it by becoming your darkest self, by giving in to your, you know, your worst impulses. Or alternatively, one of the more interesting aspects of it is that your character not necessarily at the point of death, but as sort of an advance or between sections of the campaign, can change the skin, the play sheet or character class, or whatever you want to call it, upon which the character is based. So if your character was playing, you know, say a mortal-type character or a human-type character, you could sort of say, right, you know, I didn't survive that last battle at the end. You know, my character is now coming back as a ghost. Or Or a ghoul.
1: Yes. Another blast from the past would be Toon role-playing game of cartoon characters i remember playing that in the 80s and the, the the position there of being killed was that as in cartoons you get knocked down for a few minutes and then you're back up and playing again so you can have sticks of dynamite shoved in your mouth lit and blown up Uh, But then, you know, you just fall over and your face is all blackened and there's smoke coming out. next scene, you're back up just like nothing happened.
0: Suddenly, I remember playing this for the first time back in the 80s and it being really eye-opening. The games I played up until then were things like D and D and Call of Cthulhu, and they handled damage and death and so on in a very much the same way—a very mechanistic way mm-hmm. and you... a very serious kind of style as well, yes. or relatively so. I just remember, yeah, you know, I was a teenager when I read this, and it was just like something changed in my brain when I was reading this, and sort of, but you know, zero hit points means dead. Yeah, you know, that's that's the way games work. Yeah, you know, zero hit points means dead, but in this game it doesn't. It's hang on, zero hit points doesn't have to meet yeah, hang But the, the game mechanics determine what's happening. It's, it's not kind of an immutable law writ from above that all games <laughs> must work this way. Blimey! And, and it was like a light went on in my head.
2: A game that's very popular on the UK convention circuit, Dead of Night, has not so much hit points but survival points. Um, these are both an expendable resource and what stops the plot from really messing you up that you can spend a survival point to, say, there's an app for that on your phone, or, oh, here's a key for the door that we're trying to get through. It's a way for you to influence the story. But when those have run out, the story influences you. Yeah, they're very much kind of
1: plot armour, aren't they? Yeah. And, you yeah. Can... and if you want to hear more
2: about Dead of Night, tune
1: in next time, well, not next time, in a few times in the future, and we'll be
0: doing a show specifically on that topic. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favourite games, Jaws of the Six Serpents, does something a bit similar to Fate. It's It's, more fun. (laughs) Uh, What it does is um, every time there is a fight, the GM either states or agrees with the players what the stakes are in that. So, you know, let's say that you're having a fight with a bunch of bandits who have jumped your group as they're leaving the market. This isn't a particularly important fight. The GM's just put it in there as a bit of action. It's just meant to be a quick punch-up, so your characters get a chance to look cool. At the end of it, you, you sort of say, not only is death not on the table, but you get to wipe away all the damage as soon as you've had a chance for a breather. For slightly more serious fights, if, uh, you know, if you're up against you know, a, a fairly major NPC or in a particularly dangerous situation, your character can end up with lasting scars and consequences from it, and they don't recover quite as easily. And then, say, you've finally met up with your nemesis. You're there having a fight on a rope bridge over a volcano, you know, scimitars at dawn, and, you know, this is is what it's all been building up to. Then and only then is death on the line. Dogs in the Vineyard
1: handles death a little differently, and it's a little like you were just saying with Jaws of the Six Serpents, in that when you come to roll dice as a player character you decide how far you wanna push things. So it starts off usually, or or the first level can be just verbal confrontation. And if that goes badly, fallout or the repercussions of that are relatively minor. Uh, And then you can push it to um, physical conflict uh, and ultimately all the way up to to gunplay. Death becomes quite possible with fallout from guns. At that point, you've chosen to escalate. You've chosen to get your gun out and start
0: uh, pushing it in that direction. One of the things I really like about this system, which is you don't roll that fallout until after the fight. So let's say that you do have a raging gun battle going, that you have escalated to that and the bullets are flying, and your character gets shot. You roll the fallout at the end of that, so you actually get to the end. You complete the fight. You may win. You may lose. But then you roll the fallout, and that's the point at which you realise whether your wound has been fatal or whether it's going to scar you for life. Providing
2: another get-out clause, um, the good old classic D and D has a couple of ways in which you can cheat death. Uh, normally via magic. The fact that you can have resurrection spells, reincarnation spells. That there's always a way to go. No, that wasn't quite the end. Just yeah. drag them back to the table, <laughs> particularly with that game, you've been
1: accumulating all this this gold and wealth, and magic items, and everything. So you know you can actually make use of those to perpetuate your character, which I guess is is quite a clever thing. Actually, thinking about it, you don't really get that in in many other games.
0: Yeah, you do as well in a little bit in RuneQuest. You know, you get resurrection in there, uh, and you know you RuneQuest. Or Quest maybe I game... should say in other genres. Then yes, you, you get it in that fantasy yeah. kind yeah. of genre.
1: Hmm. there is a resurrection spell actually thinking about
2: it in Call of Cthulhu as
1: well yeah but it generally does it's not your D&D resurrection no well, it? no, no it's the liveliest awfulness yeah. it's still a
0: <laughs> way of bringing back some of you <laughs> yeah but I always liked the reincarnation spell in in AD&D where you'd roll to see what your character came back as and it was a, it's the classic yeah the good news is your character's not dead anymore the bad news is he's a badger
2: <laughs> yeah. or a squirrel yeah <laughs>
0: Another game we've talked about on the podcast before, Pandemonio. Or what used to be Dread the First Book of Pandemonium and Spite the Second Book of Pandemonium. Raphael Chandler's, you know, splatterpunk, uh, demon-hunting, angel-hunting, monstrosity. (laughs) We, We love this game. And one of the really cool things about it is when your character takes a fatal wound in this, he or she is not immediately taken out of action. It then becomes your chance to shine. You get to go out in a blaze of glory, uh, you suddenly get twice as many hit points as you had or the, the equivalent of hit points. You get a whole bunch of resources you can spend on powering your magic and special abilities and you play out until the end of the scene and, and just you know, go out guns blazing. Or in
2: my case, whenever I try and do that, the dice still screw me and I just go out with a whimper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen it produce some fantastic results and we'll talk about one towards the end of the show. We've already talked about Monster Hearts, but another Apocalypse World
1: hack, Dungeon World. When you die, as a player character, there's a death move on your character sheet, which you can invoke, whereby you make a pact with the DM, I think, with the the person running the game, and they'll offer you something, and if you accept, then your character can kind of come back from death. I think you're actually bartering with
0: death itself.
1: Yeah, maybe a deity, maybe the character of death. Um, and you make some kind of deal, you know, you, okay, I'll, I'll let you go back to living, but you have to do this thing for yes. me. Yeah. I've never actually got to play that, but it sounds
0: pretty cool. It's not an automatic success. No, uh, no. Yeah, you've still got to roll for it, and there's you know a reasonable chance that your character won't actually do this. But you know, if you roll well, yes, you're back from the dead with a mission.
2: So you might be dicing with death. Mm. ba in Geiger Counter, even if your character dies, which is, is almost certainly going to happen, it's a survival horror game, the player themselves doesn't get left out that even after their own characters died, they become part of the, part of the adversary, they become, say, the part of the zombie horde, the alien invasion, whatever it might be, um, that they are suddenly the ones inflicting the pain upon their former fellow party members.
1: That's almost a gearing mechanism, as with Dead of Night. As it, with Dead of Night, you're you're spending your survival tokens, so your kind of defense against the plot is getting less and less. With Geiger Counter, as you go through it, the side of evil is kind of accumulating players, really. The, Pretty the, much. The odds yeah. are stacking up. Yes. So if you're the final girl, if you're the last person standing, everybody is now against you. Pretty
2: much. All your players belong to us. <laughs>
0: A less mechanical example comes from ron edwards 's uh, supplement for sorcerer's sorcerer and sword deals with the the idea of death. In a very genre-appropriate way, which is, you know, your character either dies, in which case, you know, he or she is dead in, you know, the classic way that you'd expect in a role-playing game. Or alternatively, the remaining player characters may decide to embark on some kind of mission or quest to pass beyond the veil of death and and recover their character uh, or recover their fallen comrade as happens in a few sword and sorcery tales. It's just an idea that appeals to me greatly. It's not something I've ever got to use in play, but it's something I really want to do at some yeah. stage.
2: A very Greek myth. Yes. Yeah.
1: Let's take a look at ways to deal with character death during the game.
0: If we accept the fact that characters are going to die during the game... There's the little matter of what happens to the player of that character. Does he or she just sit there watching everyone else have fun? Do you find some other way of getting them involved in the game? You know, Some of the examples we've just talked about with, with different games have got mechanics built into them to keep those people involved, but it's not a given.
2: I learned a valuable lesson at a convention a few years ago when a player character got taken out of play. This is a four-hour session. They got taken out of play maybe within half an hour to an hour and the poor player just sat there at the table doing nothing because their character effectively had been turned into a vegetable, that there has to be an engage- something for the player to do for the vast majority of the game session. That isn't necessarily to say that you fudge dice rolls or you fudge the circumstance and say, oh, no, we'll on that, well, that bit, that bit didn't happen. You put the, or at least I put the three, the really dangerous fatal stuff towards the end of the um, the end of the one shot so everyone has a good run of being able to get to that point that up until that they're not necessarily safe they'll get bumps they'll get bruises they'll get scraped and they'll get gradually that erosion of their safety up until that point some will arrive at the final confrontation better than others it makes it more uncertain as to how they're going to fare in said final final
0: confrontation the only caveat i'd offer is that as a GM, you can never guarantee what the players are going to do. I can think of a few occasions. I mean, there's one comparatively recent one from a few years back where I was running a one-shot I'd written where there are some very, very dangerous things that crop up during it. And one of the players decided that they were going to split off from the other group, the rest of the group and go off and poke the bear. I was desperately trying to find ways of keeping her character alive, but she just happened upon a series of circumstances which I hadn't necessarily anticipated where you know, the outcome was just going to be death. It did mean that about two hours into a four-hour game, that was it, her character was dead. I think it's worth looking at other ways that we can keep players involved when stuff like that happens.
1: So the classic one is fudging
2: dice rolls, would you do that?
0: Fuck no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I'd, I'd be selective as to what type of dice I use, but I wouldn't alter the result.
1: I think we have to distinguish here whether we're talking about one-shot games yes, or ongoing games, because there's a different expectation here. For, for me, if I'm running a, a one-shot game, at a con- particularly at a convention with people that I don't know, they've turned up at my table, and there's an ex- expectation they're going to be playing the game for four hours... If I'm designing the game, I'll kind of design it such that their characters aren't invulnerable, but I'll kind of build in mechanisms for dealing with the the chance of them dying. That takes a number of forms it might be that there's things like time loops so people do get killed and then time kind of loops around (laughs) you know it might be that that people get shot and then they realize that actually oh i thought i'd be dead now but i'm not what's going on here Hmm. i've kind of tried to build those into the scenarios so that i know even if people act recklessly or murderously to one another they're not going to stop the game because i think the main thing that concerns me isn't character death it's the death of the game
0: yes and i think Mm
1: -hmm. having several people killed or or even one person killed that's killed the game for them unless the game is built in such a way that it can survive that
0: but i mean going back to the question about fudging dice rolls i mean we talked earlier about building tension in the game and the threat of death and making making that threat feel real and palpable I think if you're going to start fudging dice rolls, then that immediately takes all that away. In any game that I run, uh, either in person or online, all the dice rolls are done in the open. I'll state to the players quite often you know, what the stake is or you know, what, what is going to come up as a result of this dice roll. That builds up the tension and then everyone's paying attention as the dice hit the table. What is going to happen? Mm-hmm. I think as soon as you start making secret rolls or you know, fudging the results, you take all that away.
2: I try to make it that when, in games that I run, 99% of the dice rolls that are made are made by the players anyway. Yeah. That I'd rather have fate curse them rather than me do it.
1: I guess if something happens in the game, particularly if somebody says they're doing something and there's a miscommunication... And you sort of say, oh, okay, well, you're going to have to make a roll. Oh, you failed it. Well, you're going to fall 100 foot. You, you're going to take, you know, 10d6 damage. Oh, you're dead. And it's like, oh, and if they were like, oh, well, sorry, I didn't realize that I was taking that risk. Then what I might be tempted to do there is kind of retcon the, the situation yeah. and sort of say, "Oh, oh, hold on then. I obviously didn't make this clear to you that you know that that was a, a yawning precipice that you were going over and, and so on. Yes, that's perhaps, acceptable. Let, let's just take a step back here, but I think that that's kind of dependent on a sense of a miscommunication for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing—I mean, you've touched upon this before, Paul—is uh, just simply warning the player of the consequences of, of what they're about to do. Uh, they may not have realised that you know the action they're about to take is potentially life threatening, and there's nothing stopping you as the GM just you know stepping out of the game for a moment and saying, sort of, you, you, "You sure? You sure you want to do that?"
1: Yeah, I've definitely used that technique. I think it also increases the tension because if the player knows that what they're doing is life threatening, because uh, they might be like we just said with the retconning, they might not really. Understand that it is so dangerous, but if you make that absolutely clear to them, then yes, suddenly they're on a knife edge, really.
0: But regardless of all these things, sooner or later, your characters are going to die in a game, all of them. (laughs) Oh yes, (laughs) well, only if you do it right. (laughs) But but when that happens, what do we do about it? The simplest thing, this works well for one-shots or campaigns, is to have characters ready that the player can just pick up and play. I remember, you know, I I was running Call of Cthulhu for, I think, you you two, certainly, and a few other people, um, last year, the year before. There was a part of the game fairly early on in this one-shot where... Your character, Paul, if I remember correctly, did something that got him killed, and this was about an hour into the game. You had, in classic style, called the police. The police had turned up, and sort of, your character had died, and sort of, right, okay, well, play one of the police officers then. This can be something that you have prepared in advance. I I, I remember playing Dead of Night with Andrew Kenrick at a convention ages ago. He knew this was going to be a dangerous scenario, and he wanted character death to be a major part of it. So he had... Basically, a stack of of characters written up on index cards in the in the centre of the table. It was set on an oil rig. We'd introduce all these characters as people who happened to be on the oil rig and were working there. And basically, each time the character we were playing died, you know, we would just put that character sheet to one side, yeah, you know, had their horrible death, and then just pick up the next one from the centre. Mm. And that worked really well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think bringing in an NPC is 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 a good move. Um, if the player characters have got a friend, not necessarily even a, a, a character they're friendly with, but a, one that they've had some interaction with, that you can just sort of say, okay, yeah, okay, take this one over. And sometimes that can also add to the game because you can sort of give them an agenda that that, that NPC mm. had. It might even be to the extent that they're actually working against the other player characters. They've infiltrated the group, in effect.
0: Well Yeah, you've done that before, haven't yeah, you?
1: Yeah, I've had that with a cultist joining the, the player characters in a Call of Cthulhu game. And it um, resulted in a TPK in the process. It almost did. <laughs> and, and the beauty there is that the player characters, or the players rather, are expecting that player whose character just died to just join them. Whatever character that player now plays is, by default, is our friend
2: and is one of us. So tip to GMs out there, put lots and lots and lots of NPCs in your game so they can suddenly become new new options when your stars of the show do eventually cark it. I think the other tip for GMs there, I mean, if you're playing a, say,
1: a and d type game, if the player characters have got hirelings or they've met adventurers in the dungeon, then try and portray those a bit, try and give them a sense of life as NPCs so that they can kind of be adopted by the player characters. Now, we've alluded to a term here a couple of times, TPK, total party kill. So have any of us had experience of this? I myself, I think, have had it happen a few times at the end of games. You know, like Matt was saying, you kind of tend to save up the worst, most dangerous stuff for the climax of the game. Have any of us actually run a game where we've had a TPK in the heart of the game? Because I can't think that I have. No, no. Personally, I've
2: never had it happen. I think from memory, I think I've had one. Um, it was actually one of the playtests for Angel of the Abyss. Half of the player group were taken out of play in a particular form. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. And then the other half, oh, they were dead. They were atomized. They were reduced to dust, kind of level of dead. But yeah, they, they went out. All of them went out of play in one fashion or another. Now I think about it, I think I
1: have had a TPK, but it was a, an orchestrated one. I gave the players characters to start in an opening scene where the odds were stacked really, really highly against them and I knew that everyone was gonna, I was going to drive it so hard that everyone was going to get killed in that first scene just as a dramatic, cinematic opening scene. And then I gave the characters a replacement character sheets and the game kind of started for real. You know, that opening scene had an impact on the, on the story.
0: And now
2: we have a look at making character death meaningful. It never is.
0: <laughs> Ever. <laughs> well... First of all, let's acknowledge the fact that not everyone likes or relies on the fact that player character death has to be meaningful in the game. I remember having conversations years ago with people extolling the virtues of RuneQuest because you know you can be playing a Rune Lord or a Rune Priest who's you know really powerful and experienced and so on, and then you know a trollkin with a slingshot you know can turn up, get a lucky shot, and kill them in one blow. And
2: I've had that in Unknown Armies. An NPC rolled zero one against me, headshot.
0: Again, yeah, that, that sort of adds to the gritty, grim realism, the threat of death and so on. But it means that you, you're introducing that possibility that death can just be a random, meaningless occurrence, that you can have what should just be a mook fight or you know, a barroom brawl or something like that, and suddenly this established character is just dead for no reason.
1: So we talked about heroic death. How can we ensure that character death is heroic? I, don't, I guess the answer is we can't ensure it. But um, we can aim for it.
0: Yeah, it depends on the game. You know, some of the games we talked about have got mechanics, which means that you know, like we were talking about with Jaws of the Six Serpents. Unless it's a really meaningful fight, death isn't on the table. So that means that we can guarantee that any death in that game is going to be a meaningful, heroic one, because we've yeah you know, we've just stated that there will be no other types of deaths.
1: Yeah, sometimes a an accidental almost comedic death is meaningful in that it's memorable and you know resonates with you i'm thinking of when we played walker in the waste scott in the design of the scenario there's uh, the chance of falling down a crevasse in the ice that opens oh, up yes. and steph's character Failed the roll, and there's about there's a sequence of about four rolls. There's there's uh, yeah, chance of falling in. in then row, there's a yes. chance of I don't know making a dex roll to grab, and then there's a jump roll, and then there's a and and you have to fail about four or five rolls sequentially to actually die. Well,
0: if I remember correctly, it's yeah, it wasn't even just failing all of them. Some of them had to be fumbles. It was a staggering
1: ro- sequence of rolls yeah. that led to her death, and that was very uh, that was like. First or second session. Yeah.
2: And she was out. But it was very memorable. I mean, it was great. <laughs> that that reminds me pretty much exactly how I went out in Beyond the Mountains of the Madness, climbing up that bloody ice sheet. Like I'll give us a percentage roll of how far up the rope were you when you fell, ninety-nine. And then failing every single roll to try and save myself by grabbing onto the rope, where I would land. And again, a similar thing, like four really high roll stroke fumbles in a row. And that was it, characters gone just when we get to the interesting shit on the ice. <laughs>
0: yeah, and this is, you know, it goes back to the idea of, of being careful about when you ask for roles like that. One of the reasons I've got such a bugbear about meaningless deaths is I remember the first ever long-term campaign I played when I was at university uh, was a DD and d game. And I had a character that I'd kind of gradually built up. He'd been through all sorts of trials and tribulations, you know, eventually made it to the heady ranks of fifth level. And, yeah, I I felt like I had quite a lot invested. And at some point we were just going to, you know, from point A to point B, and it involved going over a mountain pass. The GM, just on the the spur of the moment, said, oh, yeah, but can everyone make a dex roll? And it sort of, "Mm, OK, no, failed. Uh, All right, you fall off the cliff, you're dead. (laughs) OK.
2: <laughs> Goodbye. And, Thank you for coming.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no possibility of saving myself? No, no. You failed the dex roll. I
1: think there's a danger in role-playing games in that you've got a damage mechanic and anything that might lead to death. You know, like me driving up to Tesco now, people regularly, you know, every day, people die in automobile accidents. So the characters say, oh, they're getting in the car and driving somewhere... In the GM's head, there's something sort of saying, oh, that's potentially life-threatening.
0: Well, yeah, but do they need to roll for that, really? Is, is that yeah. going to be interesting? Well, it's not even potentially life-threatening. I think it's more insidious than that. I think it's, oh, they're doing something which involves the use of a skill and they should roll against that skill even if it's not important. The GMs are maybe not even thinking at that stage, oh, you know, is failure going to be life-threatening? And then, of course, the failure comes up, and that means that you then have to go through with the consequences in that role, and the consequences of that role mean dishing out damage. And, oh, suddenly someone's dead over something that was completely pointless.
1: And the classic one there is really the, the climb skill, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or jump. Because that is something, mm. climb is something that is a skill that one can learn, and kind of suggests every time you do any climbing that skill needs to be tested by by necessity you're getting higher and falling and taking damage
0: yeah so it feels like in if you're playing with the wrong gm putting climb on your character sheet is just an invitation kill my character yes But when we're talking about meaningful deaths, I guess we are talking about uh, kind of heroic sacrifices, facing down against your nemesis, you know, the big battle to save the world at the end of the campaign. Well, let's take a look at a few character deaths we've known and loved.
1: So we were in Italy, wasn't it, Matt? In yeah, Orient Express. In... We'd made it all the way down to there. I think it's Venice, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And We'd rode out to the island. This wasn't even a core part of the, the scenario, I think. I think this was something Matt Knot, our, our generous keeper, elaborated on for our own uh, enjoyment. This
2: Actually, was it in- was a really good bit. This was indeed a sidetrack.
1: Yeah, Matt Not he loves a ghoul. So, you know, there weren't enough ghouls in, in the game, so he had to introduce some. And then there's, there's these... Uh, it's a graveyard, so, and- hey, they're going to be there. As a sepulcher, right? Yeah, it is, in fact, a sepulcher. Yeah. And uh, so we creep into it, and there's the, all these coffins on shelves, and for some reason, I think we'd heard scratching in one of the... Oh, no, I was, it was ticking. It was ticking, tick. okay. Yeah. So my character, he's like, big and strong. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll get that down. And I'm like, you know, I've got high strength, so uh, the keeper's like, oh, okay, well, uh, just give me a roll, but but don't fumble it.
2: Famous last words.
1: So, yeah, okay, I fumbled it. Oh, okay, the coffin falls on me. I take a load of damage. But it doesn't kill me. But shortly afterwards, you know, I am sort of uh, incapacitated. Well, not incapacitated, but when the (laughs) ghouls attack soon after,
2: I'm the one that gets ripped apart (laughs) because I can't run away. Yeah, about one hit point and hardly any move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And and, and, uh, you're nasty marination and grave dust as well. Yeah,
1: and I'm still on that island, I think. I never left <laughs> well, I never of you found my body there. yeah funny that
2: yeah.
1: I think you all ran off and got in a boat and like rode like yeah. hell towards the mainland yeah because we saw what happened to you <laughs> Yeah, that was kind of a strange death because you know I didn't know it at the time but that wasn't even part of the campaign that
2: was just something <laughs> Matt thrown in killed by side plot yeah yeah killed
1: by side plot that was good I enjoyed that that was great
2: going back to other enough, the game where we first met uh, Scott, the uh, the cult campaign Louisa's un- a character that was undead at that point, having been, I think she was like, shot in the face in one scene then she was brought back as this zombified character in, in the City of the Dead and brought back from Metropolis into the real world as this thing that was just craving flesh and blood all the time being pushed off uh, a high rise roof and landing as this sentient smear on the ground <laughs> she couldn't die per se but what was left of her
0: was just sat as a puddle on yeah. the floor. Every now and then <laughs> getting picked by carrion birds. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of falling off buildings, <laughs> I, I, I mentioned earlier that um, there was an example from Dread the First Book of Pandemonium, or one of the games that I ran for it, which really, for me, exemplified how cool that rule about uh, character death is. And one of the players was James Mullen. And uh, we had this showdown with a demon or at least someone who was possessed by a demon on the top of a broadcasting house and someone had you know, called a police armed response unit and there were snipers around you know pointing guns uh, at the player characters they knew if they did anything violent they were risking their lives at the same time if they didn't do anything violent you know the demon was going to get away James's character you know, makes Run for it, gets shot down by the police marks and and dies. But of course, you know, this isn't death. This is him getting a fuck ton of, of hit points, getting lots of fuel to power his magic. And so, you know, he, he lets off a bit of offensive magic and then charges the demon, grabs hold of it. He's still got a, an automatic rifle in one hand and just basically takes it over the side of the building and rides it all the way down with his gun in his face, just emptying the magazine into mm-hmm. it before they hit the ground together. Uh, and it was just a spectacular moment.
1: And to sum up, what are our final thoughts about death in role-playing games?
0: My views on this have changed an awful lot with age, as I've sort of hinted throughout the, the recording. I was a big fan of the more meat grinder approach and, and you know, high-mortality games when I was younger. Nowadays, I like to be a lot more selective with death both as a player and as a gm i find those high attrition games to be tedious more than horrifying i think it's a powerful thing in in life and
1: it's an equally powerful thing in stories and you've kind of got to tried to use it to best effect really mm. I'm talking most role-playing games. I mean, there are some games, you
0: know, like I don't know, Lamentation of the Flame Princess, and or, or the one that we forgot to mention when we were talking about death mechanics before, uh, which is the classic example of this paranoia. No, oh yeah. God, of <laughs> course, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, enter, yeah.
2: enter clone number two.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, th- that that is. That reduces to absurdity that whole thing about nameless PCs because, yes, you've just got six clones and every time your character dies, another one comes in. That's
1: the, uh, that's the, the gold star of <laughs> dealing with death, really. I, I've mentioned a couple of things in fiction, but I think one of the TV shows that I've watched and enjoyed that has featured more death has got to be Supernatural. If Sam and Dean don't die in you know an episode, it's pretty unusual. They've been killed in, in numerous ways. They've ended up in hell. They've been possessed by demons. They've been possessed by angels. They've been cured. They've been everything
0: seems to happen to them. Although oh, that, that classic line in the musical episode of Buffy of uh, yeah the, the, that little throwaway line of yeah I've died twice and it's yeah it, it gets to a certain stage where it's yeah all right we're dead again. <laughs> It's kind of
1: fun to build those things into your games where either death is heroic and meaningful, as long as it kind of builds the story, I guess. Is it fun? I guess that's the question at the end of the day.
0: Yes, because I don't think you could have, or at least it would be more difficult to have uh, a thrilling, dangerous, exciting horror game in particular. Without the threat of maybe not even physical death, but some kind of spiritual corruption or insanity or something that's on the line that is is your survival.
2: With me, I think it comes back to the issue that I've touched on where it's timing, where I run a lot more one-shots these days than I do campaigns, but even so... It's usually at the end of a particular arc or the end of a particular session where I'll be looking to um, looking to go, the gloves are off, now death's really a prospect for you. I'll take them close up until that point, but I'm not a fan of having a player sat round the table and wait for, for hours potentially to have some more fun.
1: The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of
0: Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from BlasphemersTones.com. Well, once again, we have Patreon backers to thank. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, (laughs) I've said this a number of times, and I'll carry on saying it, we... We really are touched and humbled by how many of you have given money to pay for our running costs and to to fund the good friends of Jackson Elias. It's what's allowed us to buy new equipment. It's what allows us to pay for hosting and just the various ancillary costs associated with uh, with running this podcast. And and most recently with producing the Blasphemous Tome, which you know, should be in your hands as we speak. So, yes, Thank you, thank you all, and uh, thanks in particular to... Ron Frick. Oh, almost a namesake there. Almost. It just needs
1: an
2: R on the end and it'd be Fricker. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Ron. Yes, thank you, Ron, and we
0: hope we're, we're pronouncing your name right there.
2: Indeed, thank you very much, Ron. And speaking of namesakes,
0: we have a shout-out for Matthew Lazitsky. Many thanks, Matthew. Yes, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. I'm sensing a pattern here, because now, thank you and cheers to Scott McClure. Cheers, Ah. Scott. Thank you, you Scott.
2: Scott.
1: And last but
0: not least, thank you to Brian Lavelle. Yep, thank you very much and cheers, Brian. Cheers, Brian. Before we wrap up, though, we're going to experiment with a new segment. Uh Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. I, we had a post on Google Plus uh, earlier, well, last week, I believe, from Tom McGrenery, asked us advice uh, on a question. Uh. And we had, we had fun, you know, answering that and a few other questions that cropped up on Google Plus. And we just thought that it would be nice to throw in a sort of agony uncle section into the podcast really playing up the agony side of it, I think. I was going to say, anyone that asks us
2: for advice is really going to have some serious <laughs> <laughs> life has obviously it? gone very wrong. <laughs> yeah. They're coming
0: to us for advice. Well, and if it hasn't, it will soon.
1: <laughs> but of course, this isn't what's really happening. No. Because the advice is really coming from Jackson.
0: We are his earthly vessels. Indeed. And we will
1: channel his advice
2: to you, good listener. Because it works so well for him.
0: So we present our new section... <laughs> Ask Jackson. Our inaugural question comes from listener Steve Ellis, good friend of the good friends, who asks, "'I've received a letter from an old friend "'summoning myself and a number of diverse acquaintances "'to his ancestral family home "'to discuss an incredible discovery he has made. "'I'm worried that if we do go, "'then we'll only discover him dead in the library "'of an unexplainable and gruesome death.' Should I politely decline the visit and so assure him a longer life? Or are these things inevitable, in which case I'll RSVP? Well, first and foremost, Steve, you know, we're British. Etiquette comes first, even above life and limb. It doesn't matter whether you're going or not. RSVP, let him know. Admittedly, you know, if if he's dead by the time it turns up, it's it's purely a pro-forma thing. But still, even the dead appreciate a good etiquette. And before you go... Consider what clubs
1: and societies you belong to and make sure that you share your expedition with them and tell them why you're going and exactly, you know, give them a timetable of where you're going and what times you're going to be there. And be sure that there are some people that if
0: bad things happen to you, that they're going to pick up the trail well, keep a journal. I uh, keep thorough notes of everything you do.
2: Except leave uh, it behind before you go. Obviously,
0: if ever you feel yourself in imminent danger, yeah, place the journals uh, somewhere safe and you know maybe fireproof. Hmm.
1: Probably don't bother taking your mobile phone because.
2: It's only going to weigh you down. It's really just dead weight, and there won't be any reception there no, anyway. No. no, no. In fact, two items that would be really good to take with you because you've already mentioned you're fairly uh, fairly certain your friend is going to be dead. Just do him a courtesy. Take along a body bag or something like that to begin. And a stake. Uh, so, well, I was going to say ten foot pole, but that just for prying open the door a well, distance in case pole of the smell is just
1: you know. ten stakes in a row. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very long stake. Ten foot pole and a Bowie knife or
2: something like that. <laughs> If also your friend doesn't have any next of kin, you might want to maybe cover up the fact he's died in such a gruesome fa- uh, fashion. It might be maybe tarnish his reputation and so on and so forth. You can quite happily go down the route of uh, what's eating Gilbert Grape and just burn his house down, so that no one has to find the body and see what uh, see what horror befell him and keep his good name intact and make it all just a, uh, just an unfortunate accident. And whatever you do, under no
1: circumstances. Should you call the police?
0: <laughs> but other than that, please do call back and let us know how it goes. Yeah, alternatively, we'll find the journal on your body. And if any of you have questions for Jackson, you know, troubling matters that are weighing upon your mind, Eldritch mysteries that you need unlocking, or, you know, just the, the normal day to day foibles of everyday life, then please. Contact us via Google+, via Facebook, via the contact form on our website, and we shall pass your question on to Jackson and share his wisdom with you.
2: Well, chaps, what we thought was going to be a fairly swift discussion on death turned into quite a, quite a long debate, really. Well, it's
1: a, with strange eons, even death may die, goodbye from me. It's a
0: cadaverous cheerio from me.
2: And it's a spectral farewell from me.
0: Hello Blasphemous dot com